Jonathan Edwards once wrote, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection, never is engaged in the business of religion. Join Caleb Niedemeyer and Ryan Hanley as they discuss Ryan's dissertation. This is Oaks of Righteousness podcast. Welcome back to Oaks of Righteousness podcast. I am Caleb Niedemeyer, joined in a back closet of the Ninth and O Baptist Church. Literally. With, with Ryan Hanley. There is a sink in here, though, so I don't know we how can, that affects its closet status. But. Yeah. Do you, do you call it a closet, or is this a kitchen? Because it's not a kitchen. Yeah, if you we'll put call a, it a kitchen closet. Kitchen closet? Closet yeah. kitchen? Yeah, <laughs> I think that works. We are sans Adam tonight. He is off playing baseball or watching baseball with, uh, with his children. So I thought this would be a good opportunity because Ryan has finished his dissertation. He has def- successfully defended it. And now he just has to not trip over his long dress as he gets his uh, diploma. It's, it's true. So, someday my emotions will return and I'll, I'll be really, really thrilled. <laughs> Right now I'm just kind of staring off into empty space. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine the uh, relief and the joy uh, that has washed over your the Hanley household. Yes. In the last two weeks, has uh, it been two yeah, weeks? Yeah, three weeks I think. Three today. weeks. Yeah. Man, time flies when you're having fun, not writing a dissertation. That's true. That's true. Are you, are you like eating better, sleeping better at night, or? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sleeping better. Um, probably eating better a little bit. Um, I'm doing things other than sitting down in an L shape, typing <laughs> furiously away. So my body's thanking me for moving around, period. Oh, goodness. Bending past certain angles. I'm surprised you're still able to do that at your age. But anyway, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to talk a little bit about tonight was how you ended up uh, deciding to do a PhD. Um, so you came to Southern and then did an MDiv and then PhD. Uh, yes. What that decision, what the decisions looked like as you got to, hey, I want to do a PhD. Then how you landed on your topic, which is okay. a unique a dissertation. I'm trying to trying to think of something clever to say, but I can't think of it at this time. Uh, I'm sure I'll we'll have a couple of things. What is the what is the coney in the Old Testament <laughs> narratives or the rock badger, as some might say? <laughs> what is that? Don't know. Uh, yeah, so so take us through that kind of your journey. You and Kathleen moved to Louisville. When did that, when did that happen first? <laughs> what what year was that? If you can, nineteen seventeen. <laughs> I was. Uh... Uh, we moved to Louisville in two thousand and six. Oh goodness! When you were like three years Dude, old, no. sweet little baby Caleb. And... Hey, I was in tenth grade. I'll have you know. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, there are, there are many uh, that I have met over the years who have come and gone <laughs> as I'm still in the middle of a degree. I think, yeah, people were probably graduating with their PhDs before I finished my MDiv. But. Um, okay, so the process, uh, in college, I, I, had, I had felt a call to ministry probably around 13, 14 years old. And I had no idea what that would look like, um, but just just really knew that I wanted to spend my life trying to disciple other people. Really, really didn't know what that would look like at all. But by the time I went to college, um, my dad gave me wise advice um, to look at doing some kind of college degree that would be um, sort of practical in terms of vocation. 
And I, and I've told him this um, at the time. I thought that sounds like a very unspiritual thing to say, but especially going through uh, graduate education with a family, having that, that practical degree has just proven to be priceless. And I think uh, also allowed for a, a sort of groundedness in the midst of a lot of abstract or theological types of things. Um, but anyway, in college, so I was doing a degree in aviation science, which primarily focused on aviation maintenance uh, as a major and then uh, doing a flight minor. And somewhere around my junior year, um, we had to do a, a writing project where we talked about our career goals in aviation. And I wanted to start an aviation repair station for the purpose of hiring young men, uh, paying them a good wage to be able to disciple them in life. And as I'm, as I'm walking through that, I'm thinking like, why, why would I need an, like a repair station to do this? It feels like there's other avenues in which one can disciple others. Uh, that, that was one thing in the midst of many, like just had some really great mentors in college that um, were inspiring to watch their own theological journey and their theological education. And um, through that process, like really started seriously considering what would it look like to teach biblical studies of some kind. And again, it was fairly abstract. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go with that. But by the time of my senior year, I, I had a friend who had, had decided he was coming to Southern Seminary. And so I, I decided to visit the campus um, and just consider the possibility and um, just many, many things in life. The Lord was just throwing doors wide open and not just for possibilities, but even the exciting prospect of it, that this is uh, a goal that would be thrilling and exciting, something I would want to pursue with a lot of energy. And at that point, Kathleen and I weren't even dating yet, and so I felt like I had decided I want to go to seminary, I want to marry Kathleen, and move out here. <laughs> so I had to convince her to do that, <laughs> marry me, and then move move uh, to seminary. Was this your junior year or? Senior uh, it year? was. It was headed. This by this point was heading into my senior year of college. It was it it actually kind of freaked her out a little bit. I came back and I was telling her all about the school and like, man, this would be awesome and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, why is he telling me all this? <laughs> That's great, buddy. Like, wow, what's your name um, again? <laughs> basically, basically, in the back of my mind, I'm like, we're gonna get married and this is all this. So basically, what we decided, like, dating, fall in love, we we get engaged very very quickly. All that was insanely fast, but um, we decided like we would. Actually, we got married that following summer and decided that we would wait a year before coming out to seminary just to be married, figure that all out. Uh, got pregnant on our honeymoon and <laughs> decided to have a baby in nine months later as well. So we moved out here with a three-month-old. And essentially the way this worked out, I knew I wanted to teach in higher education, religious studies of some kind which meant I needed to do an MDiv and a PhD. I had no idea what I wanted to do my PhD in. Basically, through the whole MDiv, I would take a class and be like, oh, systematic theology, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Uh, oh, my goodness, New Testament, this is incredible. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. Church history, wow, amazing. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. So, you know, there was just a lot of kind of practical decisions. Like, in, in ending up in Old Testament studies, there was... A, a few things. One, just general interest, and I, I did well in Hebrew, and it made it made sense. Uh, so, so there's kind of that practical, like, hey, you're actually doing well in these courses. It would, you know, that that's a good avenue. 
but personal interest, like, you know, again, just the topics that I love Old Testament studies and have more so ever since I've been, been working on them, but practical considerations, like there, there's fewer Old Testament scholars in ter- like uh, just in general, um, if, if there's a, a realistic path to vocation, uh, in, in terms of teaching, then, uh, you know, there's less insanity than something like New Testament studies or systematic theology. So kind of all those kind of things were, were sort of coalescing. Um, some, somewhere around the midpoint of my MDiv, I had decided I want to go the, the Old Testament direction. So when you came to <clears throat> seminary, you knew you were staying for a PhD. Did you know you I, were staying at Southern? No. Or, oh, you yeah. knew you were going to get a PhD yes. somewhere in something. Yes. Okay. So it, it seemed in, in some ways it, like it would make sense at Southern. We're already here. We, we've sort of been established. Um, I mentioned we had a three-month-old when we moved out here. We added multiple others very quickly. Um, so by the time I was seriously considering where to go to do a PhD, there was a lot of limiting factors, like doing something overseas seems to make a lot of sense in the academic world, but how in the world am I going to get the funding for that? Am I really going to move my family overseas somewhere? We had four kid. Our fourth kid was on the way at this point. You know, a lot of options were fairly closed in, in the United States, just just for, for location and my particular areas of, of expertise or not. I wasn't even totally sure like what kind of research direction I was wanting to go and that kind of limits your options. So just through a lot of prayer through that season, um, talking with a lot of professors, I, I kind of got the basic advice I got a lot of was, you know, Southern's PhD program is really, really solid. Um, it's not going to have a lot of oomph in kind of the academic world. And so if you're equally interested in doing ministry, like a ministry role vocationally for the rest of your life, then Southern would be an excellent place to do this. And so we're like, okay, you know, we're here, we're established. I'm not going to have to move my family around. If I can get into a PhD program, then we'll, we'll do it here. You know, there was a lot of wisdom in the things that those professors were saying, but I've, I've since found out that the, like just the direction in terms of perception of Southern's PhD is, has grown in recent years. And there's just been a lot of good like actual statistics showing that, you know, Southern PhDs have, have had a, a really successful kind of lead into to academic careers. So, I mean, that, that's one of those, like, just a great thing to find out after yeah. the fact, you know. But um, So, yeah, that's when we decided to land here. What else? What did, where else am I going? Um, so you decided on Old Testament. Yes. And that was just because somehow you enjoyed Hebrew. I guess that... That describes... I didn't exactly say I enjoyed Hebrew. <laughs> I was reasonably proficient at it. <laughs> and, yeah, I, I do enjoy it to some extent. Not in any way, shape, or form close to what Adam Howell does. Oh, my um, goodness. The boy gets giddy. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Which is good if we need people like that. Amen. Amen. Praise <laughs> the Lord. To each his own right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, but how did you end up deciding, like, okay, you're proficient in that, but... Proficient doesn't so mean there, there was a PhD. There was a there was a, a personal interest in it, um, and I kind of mentioned the the pragmatic yeah. side of things as well. But there was also a sense in which I feel like just from church upbringing, like there's a lot about the New Testament that seems to make a lot more sense, mm. and doesn't seem as foreign or distant. And I really felt like I need to know more about the Old Testament. That if this is a foundation for the New Testament. Like, I don't understand Jesus. I don't understand the gospel. I don't understand the ministry activities of Paul and the early apostles. I don't understand where things are headed in the eschaton. 
um, without a solid grasping of the Old Testament. And the more that I saw that and the kinds of things I was being required to read, praise the Lord, just realizing like this, this is a, a field of study that, that could just blow up the way that I'm able to understand the Bible and to understand our faith, to understand my Lord. And so it just, that, that was just a one of many things kind of coming together and like legitimately when I, when I kind of knew that's where I wanted to go, it was, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So you mentioned a lot of those things that you could study in the Old Testament. Yes. And then you, you landed on a, a certain particular topic. How did you, how did you pick that one? Like, what was the process in getting all the way down to... I'm, I'm trying to, to think about how long I can go without actually saying what it is. And, like, we can just go for an hour <laughs> That's right. talking like, about it talking and about? the topic and everything else. Go check it out from the library at Southern Seminary. That's right. Um, so my, my dissertation title is the, the Theological Use of Nakedness Imagery in the Old Testament. Um, or the Use of Nakedness Imagery as Theological Language in the Old Testament. Um, and the idea being that like I examined uh, the, the Old Testament texts that used nakedness imagery in some form or fashion and tried to discuss what its theological purpose was in that text. So that's kind of the, the Cliff Notes version of what I was aiming for. Um, as to how, um, again, like there's probably, like somebody could write a book and in, in eternity, like the Lord will probably be able to show me a, a more connected line of how this actually happened, but... Honestly, I remember reading the garden story, reading Genesis 2 and 3, and like really trying to study it in depth and, and understand what was happening. Just many things had pointed to the sort of foundational nature of the first several chapters of Genesis, like, mm -hmm. like really foundational, foundational to describe humanity, foundational to describe God, foundational to the entirety of the Old Testament, foundation, foundational to the entirety of the Bible, the scriptures as a whole. Um, foundational to our faith, um, right? So that, yeah. I mean, like, just, this is the epicenter, like, start here and, and kind of grow out from there. And for whatever reason, one day, I, as I'm reading, you know, the man and wife, his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. And then they, they go into this whole temptation narrative. And when they saw that the food was good for all these different things, they, they took it, they ate it, and their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. And that, that last part, they knew they were naked, just seemed really <laughs> odd, out of the blue, kind of just, <laughs> what? <laughs> Not, they, they felt the, the terror of God's fury, or they were instantly consumed with guilt and terrified at the judgment that they knew was coming, but their eyes are opened, and they know that they're naked, um, and then they seek to cover themselves. And so it was just, it was just like this question of, why in the world... Was that the reaction? What happened that that was the reaction? And why did Moses believe that this is the information he wanted to convey after the, the, the initial entrance of sin into the world, the first clear disobedience of the command of Yahweh that uh, he wants us to know that the first thing that happens from that is that their eyes are open and they know they're naked. So I, in looking around, I didn't really find a lot of satisfactory answers. And so it's like, well, there, it seems like there could be a lot more to this. And I kind of jokingly am thinking in my head, like, what if I wrote like a theology of nakedness for a dissertation topic? Because I didn't have a dissertation topic. And, you know, the advice I would give is like, well, you need to write something you're really interested in or write something that nobody else has written about or something new and novel or whatever. I, I don't do well with billions of options. Like the open possibilities of the world 
I just go, uh, and, you know, start drooling or something. So if somebody's like, do this, this, or this, okay, great, I'll do this. Yeah. Um, but trying to, like, create something, I'm not ex nihilo, right? This isn't my, this isn't my gig. And so it was just one of those, like, haha, that's kind of funny. But as I look into it, I'm looking for more answers, and I realize, especially in the evangelical world and in conservative Christian scholarship, I didn't see engagement with the topic. There was some. I'm not trying to pretend like I'm the first person that's ever thought about this by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it just it wasn't a prevalent topic, and even even evangelical commentaries it seemed a little light on explanation when I would look at, at Genesis two and three. And you know, as I kind of looked, continued to read through Genesis one to eleven, you come to to Noah, right? Again. He gets off the ark. He, he makes sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord makes a covenant with him. There's all that, that all sort of wraps up the flood narrative. Um, and then you sort of have like, okay, what happens next? He becomes a, a vintner, basically, and plants a vineyard and, and then drinks some of the wine from it and gets drunk and uncovers himself in his tent. What? <laughs> Again, like... Uh, certainly we're describing historical details here, but again, why is this the information that the, the Christian or the, the, the original audience, any reader of this text, why does the Holy Spirit through Moses want the people of God to know this? Why is this the thing that he wants us to know? And then, you know, Ham goes in and sees him, goes out, tells his brothers, they go in with a garment looking the other way, so they make sure that they don't see it and they cover him up. And then Noah finds out and curses Canaan, Ham's son. What in the world? <laughs> what a strange story. Um, and so at that point, it, it kind of became clear, like, you know, there, there really is something about the nakedness imagery here, and especially between Genesis 2 and 3 and Genesis 9, that it, it seems like it's more than a, just a, a coincidence of, of terminology or just even a coincidence of historical detail that, that, that Moses is trying to convey something important mm. through the use of nakedness imagery and so I had approached my supervisor probably not long after that to just kind of throw it out there and you know he kind of joked around about it but ultimately he was like well yeah I mean yeah like start looking into it if it seems like there's something there then we can go that direction and uh, the rest is, is history at that point <laughs> so I, I uncovered <laughs> way more way more texts than I thought I would I, I didn't expect that it would be such a prevalent topic and initially I was kind of thinking can I look at the whole Bible but he wisely steered me to let's just focus on the, the Old Testament even that proved to be way too big like there's there's many things in my dissertation where I realized like man this this needs like three dissertations just on this text but that's it's fascinating to to think about that kind of stuff. What What's a practical or a couple practical things that you learned through that study? I mean, you're studying God's Word. You're studying the text. You're studying scholarship on those texts. What do you What do you walk away with? Um, in terms of, like, interpretation? Yeah. Or, okay. Just just in general, for <clears throat> for the person who goes, there's there's no need to sit, sit down and spend X amount of years studying this stuff. And it's like, well, I mean, this is... This is what you can draw from years of study on one specific topic, and this is helpful for the church. Yeah, so I think, I think one of the more important themes, I think, that came out of this study that, that I don't think has been emphasized as much in, I would say, 
again, like evangelical Christian ministry is the notion of shame. Um, and, and there's a lot of sociological studies that have come out in, in recent years or decades that have, have emphasized that, and certainly other cultures will not be new to the concept of shame. But I think in a Western culture, what place shame plays in the Christian life and in, in our understanding of Scripture, I think is something that I don't recall having been engaged with much. Um, so even in the garden story, I mean, I'll keep coming coming back to that. Certainly, the sinfulness of of their action is 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 front and center in the text. Right, there was a clear command of God, a clear defiance of that command, disobedience, and then clear uh, implications or consequences of that. Right. So, what what we tend to focus on is that the nature of of guilt, in that right, they are forensically guilty of sin, and there is a a justice aspect that they they need to be punished for their sin. Um, and so we see a lot of that, especially, you know, just from a, a Protestant perspective, right, that we're just emphasizing this, this aspect of guilt and sin. So that's in the text, but the, what the nakedness imagery, I think, in the text itself keeps a, a massive part of the, of the story is the response of Adam and Eve to sin, right? There is a guilt that overcomes them, but its, it's physical manifestation is in shame, right? So they... They aren't reacting from just a guilty conscience, oh, we sinned, that's terrible, now we feel bad about it. They are physically made aware of their unsuitability to essentially be the image bearers of the Lord at this point, right? And they're, it's, it's, it's a, a very difficult problem, and I, I don't think I even treated it adequately in the dissertation, but you know, why is it that their awareness of their sexual organs, why is that the thing that they, that's sort of latched onto in the story? And, and I mean, again, like I, I really, I still struggle with how to understand that, but, but clearly there's something about the sexual organs that, um, take precedence in terms of how one is vulnerable or exposed even to one another, right? Because their initial inclination is they take the fig leaves and cover themselves and in some sense, it seems like the, the shame is at least partially resolved. They've, they've covered up their sexual organs, and, and in the presence of one another, that seems to be enough, at least in the moment, to mitigate some of the shame. And then when the Lord comes, they hide even further. And again, still their awareness of their nakedness, their, their shame, and that is what necessitates their, their travel deeper into the garden to hide from the Lord. And at the end of all this, after all the cursing and everything, the Lord is sending them away from the garden. And again, this is sort of the justice matter, right? They're being punished for it. But he does something by covering them that is, we're right to see some level of atonement in there. But I don't think there's enough detail in the text to say, like, this is a sacrificial animal or something. Um, we're, we're not necessarily seeing a sacrifice there being made to atone for their guilt. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the Lord taking steps by covering them with skins to mitigate their shame, um, which is just a beautiful, gracious act. I mean, think about, okay, great, the Lord didn't put us to death. He still expects us to engage in relationships with one another, with other people, and with Him, but we're so paralyzed by shame that literally cannot happen. And so His act to cover them is what enables those relationships to continue. So that just needs to be explored even more. Again, I'm, I I know I was only scratching the surface on that, but I would love to see like 
some theologians get a hold of that and, and put it in broader systematic categories to, to understand how how those things filter into like atonement, sacrifice, and, and shame. But so the shame aspect was really eye-opening and and I think important in terms of even in Christian ministry that that we can't only focus on the the forensic nature of the gospel. It's primary, it's unmistakably necessary the the, the, the the forensic aspect of of atonement but I would I would argue the gospel is incomplete without also addressing uh, without recognizing and and making clear that that part of the Lord's work in the gospel is that he also deals with shame mm. right so you can mm. you can take away the guilt you can atone for the guilt but the shame's still there right? I, I did this, and the Lord took my sin away, but I, I'm still clearly fallen. I'm still clearly, completely unreliable, completely unable to, to bear this, this mantle of image bearer or child of God. And um, the Lord's act to clothe Adam and Eve, it, it, it went beyond mere but necessary forensic action. It, he, he acted graciously to take away their shame so that, I mean, what a, what a gift that they could come into the presence of God and and not feel ashamed. Man, if you'd only gotten the New Testament, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's probably in there somewhere. That's dude, that's really good actually. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. There are people who are leery of further education uh, that it can just hit the head and not the heart. Um, yeah. But I think if it's eh, it's a danger for anybody at any level. Um, Absolutely. But. I think I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but one of the guys who discipled me was always just saying how he didn't understand how the deeper you went with the Lord, how you didn't come up inflamed with the the passion and love for God the more yeah. that you learned about Him. And that's clearly happened for you and, and Adam, and, and that's an encouragement to, to other people, um, and, and hopefully that continues on. Uh, in the last couple of minutes that we have, I wanted to talk about, so, so you came to seminary, you had a three-month-old, you're graduating with a dissertation with five children. Uh, how did you, and and at the same time, when we came into Ninth and O four years ago, you were active uh, in the teaching ministry. You're still active in the church. You and Kathleen led a marriage class and like all these different things. How do you do that? How do you stay? How do you stay married? How do you stay a good parent? How do you how do you do these things while at the same time working full time? and working on a dissertation and all these different things. Just take me through that process for you. I'll, I'll hit two different kind of angles on this. So, so first, it, it sounds cliche as a Christian to say, like, truly only by the grace of God. In, in many ways, this is experimental. I knew we had to be faithful to the things that God had clearly given us to do. That was our, our own Christian walk, our marriage, our, our role as parents, whatever ministry that we could do reasonably in, in the church. Part of my ability to be faithful to my wife and kids is to provide for them financially through a job. And I, I literally called the PhD a glorified hobby for the first <laughs> five years to, then it got to the point where it's like, this can't be a hobby because <laughs> we're not going to put this much time into this and not walk away with something. All that to say, I literally, I, I, I didn't know that we could finish it. I, I knew that the Lord was, was calling me to be faithful in those things that I mentioned. I didn't 
it, it sounds cheap, but I was ready to let the PhD go if it meant that those other things would fall. And to be here is to, to be stunned and say, wow, like, I guess somehow, somehow we found our way through that maze. And, and I say that to, in, in many ways as a caution that I would be leery or I would, I would not want someone to hear my story and think, oh, if he can, if he can do it, I can do it too. Because what that calls you to is, is a, a kind of path that the Lord takes you on that, that you, de- you don't necessarily know what the outcome is. And if, if you're thinking, I'm going to make this work no matter what, and other people have done it, so I should be able to do it as well, I think you'll fall. So that sounds a little dire. I really didn't know if we could do it. And so, again, it's just that taking it one semester at a time, do everything that we possibly can, and if we can do another semester, we'll do it. It it could be very easy to think, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it work. Many people have, and any of those responsibilities can fall by the wayside. And I, I, I know they did for me at some points along the way that there would be a season where fatherhood, being a father was, I was not stellar at it, or being a husband, I wasn't stellar at it. Or I know for the last year, especially in, in terms of ministry, I've felt massive. I felt convicted and, and guilty for the lack of engagement I've been able to have in ministry. And and I don't say that in a, like, somebody needs to come along and prop, prop me up. Like, that was the season we were in. I, I'm glad I felt convicted by that. Like, I want to be in ministry and I want to be doing ministry. Um, but there's just all those kinds of seasons. So that's that's kind of one ang- angle. On the on the practical side, I, I guess I would just say, like, it's it's a path that, that you can take. And if, if you do, I, I, I think you have to be willing to give it up if, mm-hmm. if it's going to infringe on any of those other areas of responsibility. That's phenomenal. Um, there are, there are different people. I, I, I see ways that God has uniquely paired me with Kathleen Hanley, um, who is an incredible human being that, I mean, if I had been married to someone else for a variety of reasons, I don't know that this would have worked, mm-hmm. whether it's personality, whether it's her ability to bear extra stress or burdens or to stick by five years of MDiv and seven years of PhD, like, there's some people that couldn't do that, and that's not a bad thing. I just would say to that couple, like, the Lord has gifted you in other ways, and a PhD would kill your wife, or a PhD would kill your husband, and it's not worth it. It's not It's not yeah. worth that path, so yeah. you, you have to know the, the, the spouse that God's given you, the situation that, that God's put you in, and with wisdom to be able to say, I can't do anything that I set my mind to do, mm-hmm. right? But we can do... Yeah. <laughs> this is like a yeah. Christian greeting card. We we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? And and this isn't like let's pump ourselves up and do a PhD and like just keep repeating that over and over again. But literally, that's the only way that would happen. How important was was the church was the ninth and O in in completing that and and keeping you uh, towards that goal? The word is invaluable, mm-hmm. and that's it sounds, it's so overused, it doesn't have the weight, but it, it, it would not have happened without the church. Not just church generically, but the people who were praying for us, the people who were kicking us back a few notches saying, hey, you probably need to drop a class, or don't take that opportunity right now because it's it's going to overwhelm you, or take a semester off, or I, I remember one semester, and, and I didn't know him that well at all, like we had, had just 
had a, a change in our, our Bible fellowship group structure and, and our our director at the time is Andrew Ellis. Uh, I was Kathleen had come down with this crazy sickness. One of those things where like she couldn't she couldn't get out of bed and she's an insanely strong person as I've already mentioned. So for her to not get up, like she was she was out for a week. And just where it fell in the semester, I, I came to a point where I, I knew like I need to drop this this seminar that I'm taking because I can't work on the on the papers that I have to write and if I'm still trying to do that goal, I'm not going to be able to care for my wife or my kids the way that I need to. And, and I, I just texted a few guys at the time and said, hey, just pray for me. This is a decision that I've got to make and I need to do it. I need to tell you so that I don't, you know, wimp out of it or something like that. And he called, it was like five in the morning. He calls me up. He's like, hey, um, I've got to go drop my girls off. And then, you know, my wife's going to go to her job or something like that. But um, I, I have this class today, but I'm going to skip it. I'm going to come and watch your kids for you. I didn't let him do it, not because of pride, but like, again, I just, I knew that I needed to not keep trying to do this class, but I, like, I'd probably known him for three months and just, I was floored, you know, that, that someone would, would do that, you know, just, it's unbelievable. And that, that's just one story out of dozens of those kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. The, the preface to my dissertation was three pages long and it wasn't long enough. And, uh, <laughs> Like it, it was, I was a mess. I was a total mess writing that. Like <clears throat> sobbing uncontrollably. Like Jesus, I actually, we got through this, and then I'm thinking how, and like looking around at all these people, and like, oh, okay. Well, I'm excited that we were able to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I know we started the podcast like five years ago. Um, That's true. So we've recorded seven sessions, <laughs> seven, <laughs> seven episodes, seven episodes. <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad that this is this is one that we were able to do, and uh, I'm excited to sit in sweltering heat and uh, and watch you walk across side the by stage. side. Uh, that's right. Likewise, man. So um, no, that's uh, it's good. It's good to hear. It's good to see and hear the story of God's grace in your life and in your family's life. And uh, yeah, the best is yet to come, uh, no doubt. We're excited for that. But we'll uh, we'll sign off the podcast and. Uh, until next time, there is ultimate joy to be pursued. It's not necessarily in a PhD. It is in Jesus Probably Christ. Not. Probably not in a PhD. <laughs> so pursue Jesus and find ultimate joy. Amen.